Lord, you're big and you love us. That makes us glad. Now let the words that I say, let the thoughts that we all think be pleasing in your sight. For Jesus' sake, amen. Have you ever had an encounter uh, with one of these folks? Uh, Maybe you have been harassed by someone like that at some point along the way. Maybe even when you decided to come visit church here this morning, you were thinking to yourself of that encounter and you were thinking, and I sure hope this isn't one of those kind of churches. And then uh, Robbie got up and shared that today Pastor Tim's going to be preaching about repentance and you're like, oh, here we go. So let me just set the stage of what we actually are doing here today. Um, we aren't preaching about repentance today because we are a church who is eager to thump you over the head with the Bible and tell you repent or burn. We are working through a series at the moment called Marks of a Disciple in which we're exploring 11 marks or distinguishing characteristics of someone who's a follower of Jesus. Um, so we've been working our way through and we've said that these aren't the makings of a disciple as though these would be 11 things that you could just muster up on your own willpower to become a follower of Jesus. Uh, On the flip side, these are actually um, distinguishing characteristics on the outside in our lives that show that something has actually already taken place on the inside. A change has already taken place in our heart. There's two reasons really why we're doing this series. One is so that we as individuals would be able to look in the mirror and see, hey, well, am I actually a disciple of Jesus? Am I actually following him? And the other one is for us as a church corporately, so that we can look at ourselves as a whole and say, are we making disciples like we've been called to? So uh, we've worked our way through a few of these now. We started with this inner ring of this graphic that we've used. We've said that that's the upward dimension that deals with our relationship with God, and that was our first mark of a disciple, that a disciple of Jesus joyfully submits to Christ. And then in weeks two through four, we worked our way to this second concentric circle, the part that we've called the inward Uh, dimension, and we've seen that a disciple walks by the Spirit, a disciple is grounded in Scripture, and a disciple prays faithfully. That brings us to our fifth mark of a disciple today, and that's that a disciple repents regularly. A disciple repents regularly. Now, uh, you may not have heard that term repent, except from those people on the street corner holding up the signs. And so maybe a definition would be in order so that we know what we're actually talking about today. Um, to repent is to experience a change of mind and a change in actions that invo- involves turning from sin to God. So it's a change of mind and a change in actions that involves turning from sin to God. In other words, we've said before that it's not like this, that we'd be walking this way, recognize that we're in sin and stop and say, sorry, God and then keep walking the same way. It's more like we're walking, we recognize that we're in sin, we say, sorry God, and actually turn and walk a different way. Um, So there are two different ways in which the Bible can use this word repent. It can talk about repentance in terms of the first ultimate turning to God that we do at the moment we start following him. But it can also talk about repentance as the everyday, day in and day out, repeated regular habit of a believer in which we continue turning to God from our sin. And it's in that second sense of regular repentance that we're going to be talking about it uh, today in the life of a disciple. Um, So, Jesus was not on a street corner um, holding up those signs. 
However, the first time he did teach publicly, um, it's interesting what he called the crowds to do. Here's what he said in Mark 1.15. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. So that is why we feel uh, like this deserves a place as one of our marks of a disciple um, because it's the first thing that Jesus ever told the crowds to do. So our big idea today is a simple one, although we'll see as we work our way through that it's a little bit less simple uh, to live out and practice. But it's just this. A genuine follower of Jesus repents regularly. A genuine follower of Jesus repents regularly. We're going to look at several scriptures today as we unpack that idea and uh, we'll ask three questions about the life of regular repentance. The first question I want to raise is this one. What do we need to repent of? What do we need to repent of? And for that, uh, I want us to take a look at Luke chapter 15, verses 11 through 32. Um, so um, this one, uh, I want you to mark it, take, make a note to look at it in more depth uh, during your week. Uh, I'm only going to have time to summarize it now and give you a chance to read it in full later. But there in Luke chapter 15, verses 11 through 32, Jesus tells a parable. It's a story about a man who has two sons. Um, even if you haven't been raised in church, you may be familiar with the story. Sometimes it's called the story of the prodigal son. Um, this man had two sons. The younger of the two took, asked for his father's inheritance early, took the large sum of money, and went off and spent it all on wild living, self-gratification. The older brother uh, stayed at home on the family farm, working, doing everything that a good son is supposed to do for his whole life. Um, for, so for Jesus' listeners, if you would have asked them, which of the two sons needs to repent? What do you think they would have said? Which of the two sons needs to repent? The younger, right? The one that we call the prodigal son, right? He certainly needs to repent. He's the one who's been spending his money on wild living, and uh, that might be our first instinct as well, and we'd be right. Right? That the younger brother does need to repent. He needs to repent specifically of what his unrighteousness, his unrighteous living, the wicked actions he's done by taking this money, squandering it all on wild living. Um, and the younger brother does just that. He repents. He comes home to the father and he apologizes and he uh, says, don't even take me in as a son, take me in as a servant. But of course the father throws a banquet in his honor and does take him back as a son. But there's another brother in the story, the older brother. And uh, if Jesus' listeners were asked, does the older brother need to repent? I'm not sure what they would have said. Uh, I imagine some of them maybe might have said no, based on the crowd that Jesus was talking to at the moment. They might say, well, what does he need to repent of, right? He's lived his life righteously. But in the older brother, in that story of the two sons, we see that there's another need for us to repent, not just of our unrighteousness, but actually of our righteousness. Because at the end of that story that Jesus tells, that great banquet, that feast that represents the coming feast in the kingdom of God that we'll share with God in eternity in heaven, um, the younger brother is in the feast with the father, but the older brother is still on the outside. He hasn't come in because he's so angry that after living righteously his whole life, that this feast would be thrown in the younger brother's honor. Right? So we see there that, yes, we need to repent of our unrighteousness like the younger brother, but Jesus is also making the point that we need to repent of even our righteousness. Now that idea might be as mind-blowing for some of us 
as it was for Jesus' original hearers, so it's worth just taking a moment there. What do you mean, repent of our righteousness? Isn't righteousness what God desires from us? What I mean by that is that when we do righteous things or good things for unrighteous motives, then even our righteousness can be sin. That's why Isaiah 64, 6 can say all our righteous acts are like filthy rags. God isn't the sort of God who applauds us for following his rules for our own selfish ends. He's the sort of God um, who says that it's possible for our righteousness actually to be wickedness if the heart behind that righteousness isn't right. But it actually goes one level worse than that uh, for us. It's not only our unrighteousness that we need to repent of, not only our righteousness that we need to repent of, we actually have need to repent of even our repentance. As we prayed in a prayer earlier in this service that might have been a little bit jarring for some of us. Um, Let me just give an example of all three of these working out in one weekend in my life so that uh, maybe it'll be a little bit more clear. So on a Saturday morning, I... um, in a discussion with my wife, get short with her, right? Right there on Saturday morning, there's unrighteousness that I need to repent of. But then Saturday afternoon comes, and I spend some time with some elderly folks in our church or in the community, and I do it because I care about them and because for the glory of God and everything. But actually, in the back of my mind, there's a little bit of, um, man, I think this is going to really earn me some points that they're going to think I'm a really good pastor for doing, going out of my way to do what I'm doing here this afternoon. Right there, I've got some righteousness, actually, that I need to repent of because of the motives behind why I'm doing it. But then Sunday morning comes, and I'm scheduled to preach. And maybe in part because of the unrighteousness and the righteousness for wrong motives of the day before, I'm feeling a little bit distant from God. I haven't repented of those things yet, and I'm thinking of the prospect of preaching in a few hours, and I think to myself, well, I need to repent and get connected to God because I want to be perceived as a really good preacher today, and that requires a connection with God while I'm up here preaching from the pulpit, so I go and pray. God, I want to be a really good preacher today. I want people to hear me preach and say, wow, there's spiritual power behind that man who's preaching So I turn from my sin of yesterday. Please restore me to connection with you, the kind of connection that makes me feel full of your spirit and like I'm a person of spiritual power. Now, I would never be so crass as to actually pray that prayer, but I can't say that in hindsight on reflection sometimes that that hasn't been the sentiment underneath even some of my prayers of repentance in the past. You see how deep our sin goes? It isn't just unrighteousness. It isn't even just wrong motives for righteousness. It actually goes so deep that it's even our repentance is filled with sin. We can't even repent without sinning. Here's how Charles Spurgeon said it. Remember that the man who truly repents is never satisfied with his own repentance. We can no more repent perfectly than we can live perfectly. However pure our tears, there will always be some dirt in them. There will be something to be repented of, even in our best repentance. That's a reassuring quote for me to read, actually, uh, even though it's a little bit discouraging in another sense. But the encouraging part of it for me is that sometimes I think I'm the only one 
who has this level of wickedness in my heart that even when I'm repenting, I recognize that I'm like so twisted in even my motives for repenting. Um, but the reality that Scripture teaches is this is the human condition. We all need to repent, not just of our unrighteousness, not just of our righteousness done for wrong reasons, but also for our very repentance itself. So that's what we need to repent of. Now let's ask the question, how urgent is the need to repent? And on this question, I'd actually like you to turn there with me to Matthew chapter 18, verses 8 and 9. We're going to camp out there and look at it, and it'll be uh, easier for you if you're able to look at it in your Bible. Uh, In Matthew 18, verses 8 and 9, we're going to see that it's very urgent to repent. Um, Please follow along there as I read Matthew chapter 18, verses 8 and 9. This is Jesus speaking. He says... And if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. So, wish we could preach a whole sermon on this. The... Uh, urgency that's there with regards to repenting of sin is proportionate to um, how serious sin is. So I want to show you how serious sin is and what Jesus says here and then uh, by extension how urgent it is to repent. First, heaven and hell are at stake in the need to repent. Uh, You may have noticed that this person who has sinned and who has identified a cause of sin, they've identified it as a hand or a foot or an eye, and who is in danger of returning to sin the danger that they're in isn't just the danger that by returning to sin, they would let God down. The danger isn't just that by returning to sin, that they would lose some rewards in heaven. The danger, as Jesus states it there, is, according to verse 8, eternal fire. According to verse 9, the hell of fire. In other words, it's quite urgent to repent from that sin. This isn't just an isolated statement of Jesus here. Uh, We've seen in a few of the past weeks that the New Testament is pretty consistent about the idea that no one who continues to sin without turning back from that sin um, will end up in the kingdom of heaven. Um, If you want to look at some scriptures on that, uh, please do refer to our uh, couple of sermons, Definition of a Disciple and Clear clear and Captive Conscience from the past couple months. But because heaven and hell are at stake in this, It's impossible, according to Jesus, to be too extreme in getting rid of the causes of sin. It's impossible. There's nothing that we could do that would be too extreme to get rid of the causes of sin. It's worth getting rid of the causes of sin, even if they're as precious to us as a hand is, or a foot is, or even our eye is. Now, some people have taken this more or less literally over the years. A guy named Origen, an early church leader, um, actually castrated himself in response to this verse, to keep himself from sin. And so modern commentators look at that and they say, look what uh, what Origen did. Obviously, that's not what Jesus wants us to do. Otherwise, we'd all be walking around with a bunch of bloody stumps. So um, that can't be what Jesus wants to do. It's obviously wrong to take these words of Jesus literally. He must be using hyperbole or exaggerating. Okay? I think that's an overly simplistic dismissal of the weight behind what Jesus is saying. And I don't have time to unpack it all here, 
uh, but it will be in the highlights this Thursday, so you can read more of my uh, thinking here. But I think I can summarize it briefly just by saying this. If our body parts were actually what caused us to sin, I don't actually think that Origen would have been taking it too far by cutting off body parts in order to keep himself from sin. In other words, Jesus' logic here, if Jesus' logic is true, which I believe it is, that it actually would be better to enter life missing limbs than to be thrown into the hell of fire with all of our limbs, then the implication of it is also true that it actually would be better to cut off a limb than to leave all our limbs intact and end up in hell, right? So what is so extreme about it? I I don't think that Origen's problem was that he took this too literally. I think his problem was that he misidentified the actual causes of sin in his life. Um, In other words, our body parts just do what we tell them to do. What might be a cause of sin that's actually worth cutting off, getting rid of, um, might be that show that you watch that always results in you having lustful thoughts afterwards. Or that boyfriend or girlfriend that you know has never really drawn you closer to God, but has actually pulled you further away. Or that online poker website that you keep going back to and you keep losing your money. Those might be things that even though they might feel as dear to us, some of them, as a hand or a foot or an eye, they're worth cutting off at all costs, no matter how hard it is to do it, no matter how precious they are to us. There's nothing in this life, in this world, including our limbs, that's worth keeping at the expense of our eternal souls and bodies, right? Um. This is one of those situations, according to Jesus, where it's worth it to kill a gnat with a sledgehammer, to run over a spider with a steamroller, right? Whatever it takes, the people, the places, the things that cause us to sin, it's worth it to cut them off. So for some in this congregation, I know uh, you've had smartphones in the past and you no longer do for this very reason, that you've decided as inconvenient as it is not to have a smartphone, the sin that it leads me into is not worth it. I'm going to get rid of it as inconvenient as it is. That's a great picture of what it means, what Jesus is saying here, to cut off whatever you need to cut off uh, in order to repent and turn from your sin. We're going to move on here to the third point, but I want to make sure one more thing's clear on this second point about the urgency of repentance. And it's this. Repentance doesn't earn us salvation. Right? What we're not saying is that repentance saves us. What we are saying is that repentance is what we'll do if we are truly saved. Right? Um, and it's a difference. Heaven and hell are at stake. Um, it is too impossible to be too extreme in getting rid of the causes of sin, but we don't earn heaven by our great repentance. Our repentance is evidence that we have truly been saved. In other words, if we remain unrepentant our whole lives then we won't end up in hell because the bad has outweighed the good. We'll end up in hell because we haven't actually known Christ. And that lack of repentance is evidence of it. So, this is heavy stuff, so thanks for hanging with me, but we've got to deal with what the Word says. So, um, our first point was what we need to repent of. Our second one was how urgent the need to repent is. I want to finish just by looking at what the life of repentance actually looks like. In practice, this is a mark of a disciple. So I want to make sure that nobody leaves without a clear picture of what it would actually look like to live this way, day in and day out. Um, I've got five just brief points that I'm just going to walk through quickly. 
on this. Um, there's be scripture references on the screen that you can make note of and track down uh, to read more later. First, repentance is a habitual lifestyle. It's a habit that we get into. Um, last year was 2017. It was 500 years since Martin Luther nailed on the door at the Wittenberg Church the uh, 95 theses, right, that were uh, critical of some abuses in the Catholic Church and was one of the seminal moments of the Protestant Reformation. But do you know what the first of the 95 theses was? What was the topic of it? It was repentance, actually. Here's what the first of the 95 theses says. When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said repent, he wanted the whole life of believers to become a life of repentance. In other words, the whole... Uh, 95 Theses, in some senses, the whole Protestant Reformation is based on this fact that we are supposed to be a people who are constantly turning back to God. Martin Luther can find support for this in verses like Isaiah 30, 15, when the Lord says, In repentance and rest you shall be saved, in quietness and in trust shall be your strength. This isn't something that we do once when we turn to Jesus and that's it. It's something that we, as followers of Jesus, are doing every day. It's a lifestyle. Now, I want to just address one maybe point of pushback to this because it's a point of pushback that I've had for much of my life as well, um, and it's this. We might say something like, I don't want to live a life of regular repentance where I'm repenting all the time because if I'm repenting all the time, that means I'm sinning all the time, right? Isn't, shouldn't my goal actually be to live the sort of life that doesn't require repentance in the first place? Shouldn't that be my goal? And um, that's the way I used to think. But if you sit down with an older saint, somebody in the church maybe who's a veteran brother or sister in the Lord, and you ask them, ask them if they're repenting more now or less than they did when they were younger. I think what you'll hear is that they repent more now, not because they're sinning more necessarily, but because they're more aware of the sin that per- is so pervasive in our lives that they weren't aware of when they were younger. So for that reason, the common experience of a Christian is that as we mature in the faith, we don't actually repent less, but we actually repent more because we become more aware that even in our righteous acts, there's so much sin involved. That's why we can make it a mark of a disciple, that as we mature, we would repent regularly, more and more. Secondly, life of repentance is motivated by God's kindness. Now, that might sound a little different than what we heard in Matthew 18, right? We were, there we were looking at the threat of hell maybe being a motivator to repentance, right? And Jesus had to have, in some sense, intended for the prospect of hell to be a motivator for repentance. And the way he talks in Matthew 18, that's certainly what's going on there. But many of us have found that what ultimately moves us to repent is less often the fear of hell and more often the loving kindness and mercy of our Savior. Here's what Romans 2.4 says. God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. And many of us have found just that to be true. That when we stopped and realized that we were right in that moment when we were God's enemies, turning against him, running away from him, in that very moment, he yet died for us and chased us down, pursued us to the ends of the earth to draw him to himself. That that moves us in our hearts to repent and turn to him. 
Uh, we'll talk more about that kindness at, before we finish. Um, but let's move on to this third one. It's best done in a community that takes sin seriously. Life of repentance is best done in a community that takes sin seriously. We're not meant to do this life of repentance living solo, right? Doing it on our own. We uh, all have too many blind spots for that. And we're too good at excusing ourselves for our sin. Um, but being in community isn't actually inherently helpful either. And you may know that if you've been in a community, an accountability group maybe, who uh, were constantly just excusing each other for our sins and say, oh yeah, me too, right? Or we, there are groups of men who joke about mistreating their wives and being rude to their wives and nobody in the group speaks up and says a word. There are groups of women who... Um, talk together about mommy drinking. Have you heard of this phenomenon? Um, how uh, moms who kind of get through the day with their kids with alcohol and then post about it on social media and it's kind of like ha-ha and it's even in Christian circles kind of become a thing. Um, but the reason that sins like that can kind of fester even in Christian community is because we're in communities that don't really take sin seriously and aren't willing to be courageous enough to call each other out when we see it. Um, now, you may be thinking, hey, lighten up, preacher. It's not all so serious, but I think it is so serious. We already saw that Jesus said hell was at stake. We know that Jesus shed his blood for those sins that we're so flippant about. And the church through the ages wasn't always so flippant about sin, and the church even today around the world isn't so flippant about sin. The standard that we've been called to is in Hebrews chapter 3, verse 13, exhort one another every day as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. In other words, the life, the shared life that we've been called to lead is one in which every single day of our lives we're turning to one another and challenging each other, warning each other about sin, pleading with each other to turn away from the sin that we see in each other's lives. So it's best done in a community that takes sin seriously. Just two more uh, points about what the life of repentance looks like. Um, It isn't just regret, embarrassment, or apology. Each of those three can take place without repentance taking place. I can regret without repenting. Maybe uh, I regret what I did just because I don't like the consequences. Or, uh, yeah, but I'm not grieved about the action itself. I can be embarrassed without repenting. A good test, if you're trying to figure out if you're actually repentant or just embarrassed, is to think about it this way. If you could get a promise, guaranteed promise in writing, that you could keep doing this sin and never get found out or caught, no consequences, would you keep doing it? If the answer is yes, then you're not actually repentant. You're just embarrassed about the potential consequences. Um, I can even apologize, though, for my sin without repenting. How many of us have had an experience like that, even with others in our lives, that we say sorry just because we want to move on and want it to be done with, even though we're not really all that convinced that we were wrong, right? We can regret, we can be embarrassed, we can apologize without repenting. Um, On the back of your sermon insert, there's a uh, 12-point list that a pastor named Jared Wilson has come up with about trying to determine whether repentance is real for ourselves or not. We're not going to walk through it, but uh, I wanted to give that to you because I found it helpful for myself in trying to to discern in a given moment 
whether I'm actually repentant or whether it's just regret, embarrassment, apology, something else. Um, So you may find that helpful on a practical level. Finally, here in the life of repentance, it looks like feeling bad for sin, but then repenting and enjoying forgiveness. So there's two ways to miss on this as we're trying to walk the narrow road of repentance. There are two ditches that we can fall into, one on either side of the road, right? In one ditch is where we feel bad for sin, so far so good, but then we stay there, just immobilized, stuck in it, wallowing in it, beating ourselves up. Even though we've repented, said sorry to God, we just stay there, living in condemnation. Um, That's not what the scriptures call us to. Um, But on the flip side, the other way to miss is that some of us try to skip this first part about feeling bad for sin. And we say, I, I prayed a prayer once, and I know Jesus died for my sins, so it's all good between me and him. And we just keep on living our lives and try to enjoy forgiveness without ever feeling the remorse. And neither one of those is what the Bible talks about with true repentance. The way the Bible frames true repentance is that there's remorse, but then that remorse is a godly grief that is followed up by the affirmation from God, hey, that's enough now. The godly grief has achieved its purpose. You've repented. Enjoy the forgiveness that's been purchased by your Savior, Jesus Christ. So we've gone through a lot of, a lot of content today. Um, we've seen what we need to repent of, how urgent the need is, what the life of repentance looks like. We've been making the case here that a genuine follower of Jesus repents regularly. I just want to finish by addressing two different groups of people who are in the room today. Uh, First, I want to address you. If you're here this morning and you've never made that first decisive turning from your sin to God. If that's you and you're here this morning, today could be that day that you make that decisive turn from your sin to God. Now, there may be something in your heart that wants that that wants that relationship with God. But you may be held back by thinking, I don't think I could ever turn from my sin. I love it too much. I, I, I've tried to stop my sin before, and it doesn't work. I don't think I'm up to the task of following Jesus. But friend, please hear this morning that you don't have to figure out how to clean up your life and get rid of your sin before you come to Jesus. If you enter into a life with Jesus... A life with Jesus, a relationship with Jesus, always does bring about a new relationship with sin. And it won't have to be on your own strength. He will fill you with your Holy Spirit and give you the power to fight against sin and be victorious over it. And as you reflect, after you give your life to Jesus, on his loving kindness and mercy that sought you and pursued you to the ends of the earth, even when you were running away from him, even when you were spitting in his face and doing everything you could to rebel against him and live life your own way as your own God, in that moment when you're reflecting on his kindness and loving mercy towards you, you'll start to feel the desire for those sins just melt away. Many of us have had this experience where we don't want that sin anymore in the way that we used to want it. And it doesn't become this white-fisted battle against sin anymore. It becomes something that's lost its hold and grip on our lives becomes something undesirable to us because of the great mercy of their Savior. Today could be that day for you. But I also want to address the person here who is a professing believer in Jesus already. 
you have made that decisive turn from sin to God somewhere along the way. Please hear this morning that your repentance didn't end that day. We are all prone to wander, and as a result, regular repentance is the life of a disciple of Jesus. What may hold you back from that is that you might be here this morning convinced after our time together that you need to repent of your sin, knowing that as a disciple of Jesus, that would be the right thing to do. But if you're honest, you might be thinking this morning, I don't actually want to repent. I actually love this sin that I'm in, and even though I am a Christian, I don't really want to give it up if I'm honest. What do we do then? I've been there, even as a Christian, for moments. Um, I've spoken with many people who have been there. And here's the question I always ask when someone says, I don't really want to repent. Do you at least want to want to repent? In other words, is there anything in your heart that desires to have a different kind of heart that would want to turn away from your sin? If so, then plead with the Lord Jesus that he would grant you the gift of repentance in your life. That's a final component of this that we didn't get to talk about today. But in Acts chapter 11, in 2 Timothy, repentance is talked about as a gift from God. And if I'm ever in a place, and if you're ever in a place where we find ourselves not actually wanting to repent, the answer is to go to our Lord and ask him to give us that gift. It's a gift because even though it's a decision that we make to repent, even though it's an action that we take, none of us can make that decision or take that action unless the Lord first softens our heart to make us want to repent. So we ask him, Lord, give me that sort of a heart. I don't want to repent right now. I love this sin. I'm treasuring it. And that bothers me, Lord. And so please change my heart. Make me the sort of person who hates this sin like you hate it and who loves you with such a love that this sin loses its hold on my life. That's a prayer that the Lord will answer. He'll answer it because it's consistent with his kindness. And he'll answer it often in conjunction with revealing to you his kindness, the kindness, that same kindness that pursued you to the ends of the earth and keeps on pursuing you, even though as a Christian you continue to turn your back on him and run away from him and even spit in his face. Our God will answer that prayer, and you'll know that he did answer that prayer. For a repentant heart because you'll find yourself changing inside to the point where no action seems too extreme in getting rid of the sin in your life. Let's pray that the Lord will do that work in our hearts. Lord, this is a heavy word we've encountered in your scriptures this morning about how serious the need for repentance is. But it's a great good news that this is a gift that you give, and you give freely, and you give liberally, and you give to all who ask of it and come seeking you. Thank you that any of us who call upon your name will be saved. Thank you that you will give us that repentance. And Lord, as we sing a few songs to finish, as we celebrate the baptisms, of a couple of sisters in the Lord, we rejoice with you in what you've done in their lives. 
causing them to repent and turn from their sin and turn towards you. And we're reminded of what you did for us in the process. Make us a people whose lives are characterized by a regular turning back to you over and over and over again. In Jesus' name, amen.